0: The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Wonderful third Sunday in Advent we gather together to worship our Lord. Let's, let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that uh, as your word says, uh, your word is living and active. It is able to penetrate into the deepest part of our being, able even to divide between bone and marrow. Um, and we ask, Father, for that work of your word in conjunction with your spirit, to work into our hearts and our minds a sense of renewal, of a reawakening of hope, a reawakening of wonder and even awe. Father, we are so used to coming to church, uh, accustomed to hearing words, messages about the, uh, the incarnation of Christ, the coming of God in human form, that after a while it becomes a kind of white noise and we lose our sense of wonder we grow up and in growing up we lose perhaps that fascination with the marvelous miracle of what it means for god to walk among us for your word to promise the nation streaming into uh, your holy city your church to hear the word of the lord to see and behold and to marvel at What God has done and continues to do through his son. So we pray that we would, with your help, be revived in our sense of wonder and awe. That we would stand, uh, if you will, our mouth open at the wonder of who you are and what you are doing and what you have done to bring us to this moment We are not here this morning, Father, by accident, but by divine appointment. And so with that trust and with that hope in Christ, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to speak to us. Whatever burdens we may have, Father, we now lay them uh, at your feet. Whatever things would weigh us down, whatever fear or anxiety, whatever hurt, whatever sorrow, whatever grief, whatever joy, We bring them into your presence that you might sanctify them. And by that act of making those things holy, we would find our sense of hope and joy and awe and wonder renewed because we are basking in the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are with your people whom you have gathered in your name to worship you, to acknowledge your greatness and your glory, and then to go out from this place shining with that light of Christ being salt, and those who would bear witness uh, as stars in the darkening sky shining ever more brightly with the truth that Jesus Christ is alive, that God the Father is a holy and just judge and a loving Father, and that your Holy Spirit is a life-giving, hope-renewing, faith-restoring, heart-changing spirit who is real and genuine. Father, speak to us now from your word, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's the day, the weather of the day is appropriate for the way I'm going to introduce the sermon because if you have, like uh, many of us, lived most of your life in the Northeast, uh, you know that the season of Advent confronts us with a very curious contrast. The same season in which we are preparing to celebrate The birth of Jesus Christ as the light of the world happens at the same time when the days are the shortest, the nights are the longest, and darkness seems to dominate our daily lives. It's it's hard at times to get into the season of light when the sun goes down and it's dark at 4.30. There's also another contrast that occurs at this time of year because if you go to the mall or if you listen to any music of this season, you are confronted with all manner of exhortation and encouragement to participate in joy and wonder and the sheer awe of the season. But for others who find themselves in the midst of that exhortation, this season may also bring with it an overwhelming sense of melancholy, of loneliness, and, and even gloom. We wrestle at this time of year because it's hard to rejoice perhaps when you're still grieving the death of a a loved one. Hard to rejoice when you look at your life at where you are right now, whether young or old, and it hasn't quite turned out the way that you thought it would by the the age that you're at. Hard to rejoice perhaps when you're worried that you might lose your job or a, a, a beloved co-worker has lost theirs. Hard to rejoice when you just haven't had a good night's sleep in a very long time. Um, Because as parents of young children know, you can never get enough sleep. Pain makes sleep elusive. Anxiety may rob you of a good night's sleep. Regret, perhaps, breeds its own kind of insomnia. And yet every year at Advent, here we come into this season in which God the Holy Spirit invites us to refresh our faith, to renew our hope, and revive our love for what God the Father did in sending God the Son for us. Every Advent, in the midst of this contrast between light and dark, every Advent then becomes this marvelous opportunity to gather with friends and loved ones and family to hear again the the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Every Advent reminds us once again that Jesus was a man who experienced pain, was familiar with sorrow, well acquainted with grief, as Isaiah says. At the same time, because of those things, he is then able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Every Advent is an opportunity to bathe our heart, our mind, and our soul in the renewing power of God's love to be overwhelmed by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. Every Advent is a time to remember and to be encouraged that Jesus is in fact the light of the world and that light has shone into our hearts by the grace of God and that light that Christ brings shines in the darkness, still shines in the darkness and the darkness will not, has not, and will never overcome it. So every Advent is a God-given opportunity to renew our sense of awe. And see how it changes everything we think, say, and do. And that's really the big idea for the message this morning. That Advent is a God-given opportunity to renew our sense of awe. And to see how it changes everything we think, say, and do. And So as we look at Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, working through the message, we'll we'll look at it from these particular angles, that awe is the key to experiencing the power of God to draw people to himself. That awe is the the key to experience the hope of God's promise to establish true peace and justice. And awe is the key to experiencing the help of God by living according to his word. I've been helped a lot in this concept of awe, and that's, that's a word that we're not accustomed to using. It's a Kind of an old-fashioned word, awe. That doesn't really, unless you're me, doesn't really creep into your vocabulary. As my wife reminds me at times, speak like a human being with normal words, right? But awe is a marvelous word. In his book, Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do, Paul Tripp makes this observation. Where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. It just makes sense that your source of awe will control you, your decisions, and the course your story takes. If you live in awe of material things, you will spend lots of money acquiring a pile of material stuff. And to afford your ever-increasing pile, you will have to work a lot. You will also tend to attach your identity and inner sense of peace to material possessions. spending way too much time collecting and maintaining them. If material things are your awe source, you will neglect other things of value and won't ever be satisfied because these material things just don't have the capacity to satisfy your awe-longing heart. So there is a strong sense that at Advent, in particular at Advent, it reveals what is our Awe source. What is the source of the thing that occupies our wonder? I, you, I could even go so far as to say that the thing that causes you awe is more than likely the thing that you worship. It could be career, it could be family, it could be the success of your children, it could be your own success. Or as Paul Tripp has pointed out, it could be the acquisition and the maintenance and the continued acquisition and maintenance of material stuff. The Bible uses the word awe to describe a a kind of heightened emotional state which is characterized by a a fusing of fear, astonishment, terror with wonder, veneration, and reverence. That's the way we're going to define awe moving forward, and we'll apply it to Isaiah 2. We're going to look at awe as this heightened emotional state which is characterized by a fusing of fear, astonishment, and terror with wonder, veneration, and reverence. Bearing in mind that whatever it is that causes us that kind of awe is more than likely the thing that we worship. Whatever it is that causes us to have terror with wonder is the thing that's going to occupy the goal center of our life. Awe in the Bible obviously is more often than not directed at God. One scholar describes awe as being that state of mind which contemplates the holy other, that which is quite beyond the sphere of the usual, the intelligible and the familiar, which is there, therefore falls outside the limits of the canny and is contrasted with it, filling the mind with blank wonder and astonishment. Think for a moment of Isaiah's own experience. If you were to jump ahead a few chapters to Isaiah 6, after the death of King Uzziah, Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees a vision of God, the train of God's, the robe of his glory filling the temple. And Isaiah is shaken to his core. He says, I'm, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. That's awe. That's what all will do. That's what... Terror with wonder and veneration and reverence will do to the human heart and spirit in the presence of the almighty holy God. Think of the, the apostles, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when they see Jesus transformed right before their eyes. And Peter, not knowing what he's saying, so let's make three booths, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Think of Paul's sense of awe when he is encountered by the resident Christ on the way to Damascus to persecute the church. And he falls to the ground blinded by the glory of Jesus. Or think of the Apostle John in in the book of Revelation when he sees Christ, hair white as wool, eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze, and he falls at his feet as a dead man. That's awe. That's the kind of awe that Advent invites us to experience through contemplating the, the amazing work that God has done and continues to do through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then uses awe, uses wonder, uses this sense of heightened emotional awareness of the presence of God, not to frighten us, not to drive us from God, but to draw us in. That's the whole point of what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 2 that the Spirit uses awe to draw us closer to God the Father in worship and reverence of him. That's how he refreshes our faith, he renews our hope and revives our love for what God has done for us in Christ. It is Advent, this God-given opportunity to renew our sense of awe in the midst of a culture that really has neither the desire nor the ability to contemplate the holy other that which is quite beyond the sphere of the usual, the intelligible, and the familiar. If anything, we reject as a culture those kinds of things. If you can't explain it, you can't quantify it, you can't attribute it to science, you cancel it. You remove it from public discussion because it's just too dangerous to contemplate what it means to be in the presence of something that is inexplicable, yet fundamentally real and solid. And that's a shame because according to Isaiah, that kind of awe, that kind of inexplicable glory, that kind of heightened awareness of God's presence, authority, and power, well that's the key to experiencing his power. That's the key to experiencing hope. That's the key to experiencing his help. Before we we get into the actual text itself, just some background and who Isaiah is and why he writes what he does. We know that Isaiah lived about 2,700 years ago, over 2,700 years ago, and approximately about 750 years before Jesus. Before Isaiah is born, uh, the 12 tribes that comprised the nation of Israel had a civil war, and they split into two kingdoms. Ten tribes went to the north, became the northern kingdom of Israel. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is from Judah. Judah likely born into an aristocratic family. He's not a priest, but he is a prophet. His career as a prophet spans something like 40 years, during which time the northern kingdom, Israel, is invaded, conquered, and sent into exile by the Assyrians. At the same time, while Israel goes into captivity and is obliterated as a nation, Judah, Isaiah's homeland... Is humming along like a well-oiled economic machine. It became a powerhouse economically and socially and culturally. Under the leadership of King Uzziah, who by the way was a good king, did everything that was right in the eyes of the Lord, the nation and the people flourished. He was a popular king, was Uzziah. And he had established peace with Assyria, and everything in Judah was comfortable. And as serene as a sunset after a day on the beach. And then Uzziah dies. And the Lord then commissions Isaiah to be his prophet. And the message that, Isaiah, that God sends Isaiah to preach. Sounds about as comforting to the people of Judah. As hearing a fire alarm at 2 a.m. in the morning. Because what made his message so peace shattering is that he delivers it at a time when Judah is prospering financially and economically and socially. Life was good. In fact, life was so good in Judah that they began to choose seeking their own comfort, pleasure, and personal needs over seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so as a result, the opening chapters of Isaiah, if you read Isaiah 1, for instance, it begins with a list of indictments. The Lord is angry with Judah because of the confidence they have placed in their own comfort. And so he sends Isaiah to deliver the subpoena. And so they could hear now the indictments that God has against them. And Isaiah 1 ends with this very ominous word of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. Listen to Isaiah uh, 1, 30-31. The prophet says, You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong uh, shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. That's stark. In his commentary uh, on this passage, John Oswald makes this observation. The reason why Isaiah delivers such a stark message is so that proud, self-sufficient Israel can become the witness to the greatness of God Only when she has been reduced to helplessness by his just judgment and then restored to life by his unmerited grace. So perhaps you come here this morning or are in the midst of a season of life when you are like an oak tree whose leaf has withered. You are a garden without water. Your strength has become like tinder, your work like a spark. And you feel as if all of your carefully laid plans are going up in flames. The word of the Lord from Isaiah is, if that's you and those things are happening, God is at work in your life so that you may be restored to life by his unmerited grace. Advent is an invitation to consider where we are in the course of our life in regard to our relationship with God and his will for our life. There are times when those two things are going to be in conflict. And when they are, God has a way of bringing our desires out of the darkness and into his marvelous light so they may wither and die so that they may be replaced by something far better, far more satisfying, far more life-giving, far more meaningful, and far more a blessing to those around you. So Isaiah delivers this message with a sense of harshness. But then as Isaiah 2 opens, there is this note of optimism. Because the whole point of the opening part of Isaiah 2 is to remind Judah and to remind us that our hope is not in material things. Our hope We've just been through an election season and we're getting ready already for another one coming up in two years. But our hope is not in the integrity of our elections. It's not in the the power or the integrity of our political leaders. Our hope is not even in the prospering of our economy. It's not in the might of our military. It's not in the potential of our own rugged individualism, ingenuity, and resilience as Americans or Christians. Our hope is not in treaties that are put together by fallible men and women in order to save our planet from climate change. Our hope, says Isaiah, our hope, says the Lord, is in something far more durable, more resilient, more dependable, more trustworthy, more satisfying, more life-giving, because our hope is not in a thing, it is isn't in a person. It is in someone. Our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our hope is in the Lord who created us in his image and likeness, who has breathed his life into us, who has brought us back to life by the very same spirit that he breathed into us at creation. Advent is an annual invitation to reconsider and to contemplate anew that amazing fact. An annual invitation to contemplate the holy other, that which is quite beyond the sphere of the usual the intelligible, and the familiar. A God-given opportunity to renew our sense of awe and how it changes to what we say, think, and do. That's why I prayed as I prayed in my opening prayer because we can get into this rut. Well, it's Advent. You know, all that means is there's a couple more months to Easter and then we can move on from there into the summer and then we have vacation and then the school year starts and it just goes round and round and we begin to sort of just get into this routine Because Advent comes to me not so much a celebration of the birth of Christ, but I've got presents to buy. I've got family to visit. I've got travel plans to make. I've got a house to clean. I've got meals to prepare. I've got things to bake. I've got people to sort of accommodate. I'm running a motel six out of my house. And you begin to lose that sense of awe and wonder and joy because the dullness and the drudgery of routine takes precedence. Awe is the key to experiencing the power of God, and in particular the power of God to draw people to himself. Isaiah writes in the first three verses of chapter 2, the word that Isaiah, the son of us all. It's interesting, too, how the prophets, they see the word. Not quite sure how that works, but he sees the word, this vision that he sees, he beholds, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord of the The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we we may walk in his paths. There's a, a certainty with which the prophet speaks. It's as if Isaiah can stand on mountain of his own time and look over the peaks of the centuries and see a day. No one else can see, but God has made known to him and has shown to him. It shall come to pass with absolute certainty. What I am seeing, God will bring about, says Isaiah. The, and that what he sees is the mountain of the house of the Lord. Jerusalem, that holy city where the temple is located, that will be raised up because there will come a time, as Isaiah has already predicted, when Jerusalem, in a sense, will be laid low and will be laid waste. We know that happens when the Babylonians invade, but God will raise it up. Just as God brings us down and may humble us and bring our plans to naught so that he may resurrect our hope, our faith and our love for him, with a newness, a freshness, and a vitality that is better than we could ever imagine, God will do the same for his holy people, his holy city. A time is coming, says Isaiah, when God will permanently establish Jerusalem as a city of great importance. It's interesting that from Isaiah's perspective, when he uses the term latter days, he's referring to the time when the Messiah would come the one who would come and deliver Israel from her enemies. Generally speaking, Jews like Isaiah, the way they approached the future was to put their back to it and look toward the past and almost back into the future. They would always be mindful of what happened in the past, knowing that God was taking care of what was happening in the future. So in this sense, you could say the Jews were always nostalgic for the future because they had seen where God had brought them from, not quite sure where he was bringing them to, but wherever it was, it was a good place. When we come from this uh, phrase from the New Testament perspective, the latter days refer to this time, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The latter days describe that interim period, if you will, between the one advent and the next. And during that time, much as did Jerusalem after Babylon was through with it, the church, at least in the northern hemisphere, at least in the western part of the world, right now the church looks fairly insignificant, rather ineffective, and quite irrelevant, as did the people of Israel and Judah. I mean, there is hope. There was a recent article, I think, in Christianity Today that pointed out that the vast majority, in fact, the overwhelming majority of missionaries being sent out into the world, they're coming from Latin America. They're not coming from Great Britain. They're not coming from the United States. They're coming from Latin America. That's a marvelous thing. There's hope there, in other words. Because as someone once said, it ain't over till it's over. God will have the last word. So, Christian, don't be discouraged. Don't lose hope in God. Don't lose hope in what God will do in and through the church. Paraphrase Shakespeare, though the church be small, she be fierce. And she be mighty. Because her strength and power and might come from the Lord who is on her side and who is in her midst. She will not be moved. In other words, in fact, the church is always on the move, always advancing. This is, after all, Christ's church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The power of God is such that even in the midst of seeming insignificance, the church's mission still goes forth. And we have a part in that. Advent invites us into that story. Advent invites us into that power. Advent invites us into that mission. The one that the world treats with disrespect, God holds in high esteem. She whom the world would hold in contempt, God honors with compassion She whom the world would curse, God would bless. His church is his church, and if you are part of it, God invites you into that reality, into that community, into that mission, into that work, that a glorious thing that God is doing as he is building us into a spiritual house in in whom we make and offer spiritual blessings through the Holy Spirit, in whom the Spirit of God himself dwells. This is what we're invited to as God draws us to himself, Because our hope, again, is not in the state of our economy. It's not in our retirement accounts. It's not even in the direction of our culture or the results, again, of any election. Our hope is in the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. And our mission, our mission is to be his witnesses. As those, this always astounds me when I think about my own weakness, my own pettiness at times, my own sin. God invites us who have that same weakness to be his witnesses so that we would shine out with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the deeper the darkness, the brighter we shine. And the brighter we shine, the more people will be drawn into the presence of God to worship him in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations, says Isaiah, will flow into the mountain of the house of the Lord because they will abandon their false sense of awe. They will abandon their false gods. They will abandon their idols of materialism, an idol of investing everything into the success of our kids, everything in the success of our identity. All of those things will be abandoned and replaced by true worship, which truly satisfies The Spirit of God will do this, says Isaiah, We will cause the nations to worship. And we have a role to play in that as his church. In Isaiah's day, the the God of, uh, what's amazing here is that in Isaiah's day, the the God of Judah and Jerusalem, Yahweh, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the nations around Judah saw the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as kind of a local deity. It was like Englewood Cliffs had their own God. And then you go up to Demarest, they had their own God. You go across to Manhattan, and each section of Manhattan has their own little God. And so Yahweh was just one God among many gods in many localities. But here, the declaration is because Jerusalem will be lifted up as the highest of all the mountains because that's where he went to worship your God. You didn't go under the earth. You went to the high places so you could be close to where they were. If you remember your your Greek mythology, right? Mount Olympus, right? You went up to the mount. So here, Jerusalem is lifted up highest, and the nations stream unto it. And God establishes himself not as one God among many, but the only God, the only true God, the only one worthy of worship and sacrifice and adoration, a God truly of compassion and love and mercy and. Great right? loving kindness. We see this fulfilled. Certainly when you read your New Testament, and you get into the book of Revelation. Revelation 5 has that marvelous scene of worship where people, God draws people from every nation, tribe, language, and people to worship himself. And guess what? We have an opportunity to partake in that because what Isaiah prophesied is taking place even today. The, the church is the location of God's saving activity in the world shining out with the light of truth. It's a reversal <laughs> of what happened at the the incident at the tower of babel in Genesis 11. Remember in, in babel in Genesis 11 the nations of the world came together said let's build a tower make a name for ourselves. Right people are still doing that whether it's billionaires competing with one another who can be the first to privatize space travel, whether it's people trying to establish platforms to become influences over the internet, or whether it's just our own little kingdoms that we seek to control, whether at work or in our homes or in our communities. We're all seeking to make a name for ourselves because we think that that's the most important thing of all. If I could just leave my name on a building, or somehow imprinted onto something and be remembered. That's not the aim or the goal of life. I remember I read with with some shock and dismay, I think it was in a missions course in seminary, that back in the, uh, I think the 19th century or 18th century, the Moravians were sent out as missionaries from Central Europe, I believe in Germany, out to... uh, places like Jamaica and Bermuda and things like that. And the leader of their movement, a man named Count Zinzendorf, he gave his missionaries one central command. Preach the word, die, and be forgotten. Put that on your tombstone. That's sobering. But it's also true. True. Because our time on this earth is very short. Even if we get our 80 or 90 years, as the psalmist writes about, Advent reminds us of that there is something more eternal than our name, something more important than anything we could accomplish in this life. Something more permanent, something more lasting, something more satisfying, someone who provides that sense of permanence. So where the, 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 the builders of the tower of Babel sought to make a name for themselves, God said, that "We're not going to let that happen, because that's not the goal of humanity." So he confuses the language and he spreads it out over the Earth. And then what does God do? Over the course of centuries, He forms a nation, Israel. He gives it a mission. They fail in that mission, and finally He sends his son. And his son begins the process of bringing people together under the banner of God's authority, love, and covenant. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon the infant church. And what happens? All the nations that have been gathered to Jerusalem to worship on Pentecost begin to hear the gospel in their own language. And God has made a name for himself by telling the nations I alone am God. I alone am worthy of worship. And they begin. So we have this reversal, and we have a participation in that even now, that as part of the church, God drawing His people to Himself, we have this opportunity every advent to remember and then to act upon this great reversal that is now taking place. Because as the nations flow into Jerusalem, they then flow out into the world. Jesus said that, right? The preaching of the gospel will start in Jerusalem and then it will spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. Advent is a moment to step back and to see with wonder and awe. This is what God is about. This is what God continues to do. That the light still shines and the darkness has not overcome it. And the nations flow into the house of the Lord so that they, he may teach them and that they may walk in his paths. And the progression there is important because first God draws us to himself. He knows we know nothing about what it means to follow him. So he doesn't wait for us to be ready. He doesn't wait for us to be holy or good or knowledgeable about his will. He pulls us into relationship with himself and then he begins to instruct us. Now that I have saved you, now that I have redeemed you, now that I have swaddled you in my love and mercy and grace, let me now feed you with my word that you may then go out as you grow and feed others and bless them. So he gathers, he draws, he instructs, and then we live it. That's Advent. In terms of how God works, he draws people to himself, and Advent is the key to experiencing that kind of power. It's also, Advent, the key to experiencing the hope of God's promise to establish true peace and justice. For out of Zion, Isaiah says, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, the Lord that is, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. The law is simply the moral instruction, how we are to live. But the law is ineffective in this sense. The law can tell us what we need to do, but it takes the active word of God, the good news of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit to help us carry out the law that God gives to us. So you have this balance of this moral instruction. This is the way that you must live. And then the gospel shows us this is how it can be done through and with the help of the Holy Spirit because of the work that Christ has done for us in fulfilling the law. All of the moral instruction, all of the righteousness, all of the holiness, all of the goodness. And it's because this one, this Messiah, fulfills both and is both, if you will, he is able to render judgments when the nations come to him with disputes that are so satisfying that they give up any idea of going to war about it. If you pay attention at all to politics or if you've ever been involved in a labor dispute and, and there's a compromise that's achieved, what's one of the basic fundamental rules of compromise? Is no, one's really, no one's really happy on either side. But they've at least come to an agreement that this is what we're going to do. That's not the case here. That the Lord would render such beautifully just and true and honest judgments that both sides, we don't need to go to war. And those implements that we would use to kill one another, we're going to transform them into things that would produce food Things that will help benefit both our societies, both our communities. It's the kind of peace that we long for. I mean, if you've, I've never been to the UN, but I know that this passage is plastered on the walls of the UN. Haven't been very successful, have they? But this Messiah, this Jesus, is and will be. And the peace that's mentioned here is a peace that comes from God to us. It comes downward. Because only God can establish this kind of peace. It's the reason why Jesus is God with us. Because the peace that we need to have between God and us, only God himself can establish. So he sends God the Son to establish peace with God the Father... Paul says this in Ephesians 2. We looked at this in our Ephesians Bible study that Jesus Christ is our self, is himself our peace. He de- breaks down a dividing wall of hostility and he gives us access through one spirit to God the Father. The only way to access that peace is through faith in Christ as peace himself. Advent reminds us and invites us to contemplate what it means we all long for that, don't we? We, we? we think and we hear, or you've been paying attention to news of what's going on in the Ukraine. There are other places in the world where there is violence taking place, where there is war, where there is injustice. Here in our own nation, for sure. And we advocate for it, and we work for peace, and we work for justice. But we also realize that true peace and true justice won't come until every heart is owned and won and inhabited by the God of peace himself. Because peace with God ultimately leads to peace with one another. When contending nations settle their disputes in the way that Isaiah describes here, because the Lord himself renders judgment that is so absolutely just and good, honest and true, pure and permanent that the nations don't need to go to war. And the picture here is a, of a, a universal peace. But on a practical level, if that seems too unreal, too unapproachable, too almost fairy tale like, what about peace between you and your spouse? Peace between you and your children or your parents? Peace with your coworker? How about that Would that? Would that be something you would be interested in knowing and experiencing? Taking whatever complaint you have against one another to the Lord for him to render a judgment such that you would lay down your weapons and in your vulnerability and in your transparency and in your humility allow peace to rule in your heart, the peace of Christ to rule in your heart? Advent is a wonderful time to work work at reconciliation because that's the very reason for why Jesus came is to reconcile us with God and having been reconciled with God we are now able to be reconciled with one another he can do that and he has done that he can do that between human beings men and women created in his image who are seeking to follow him in everything they do. Awe is the key to experiencing that kind of hope that God will do that. And hope not in the what-if sense, but hope in the confidence and assurance sense, because that's how the Bible uses hope, as a confidence, as an assurance. If you don't have that hope, if you don't have that assurance, Advent Advent is a marvelous time as is any day of the year to come into that relationship with God through faith in Christ that you would experience having been drawn to Christ now to learn of him and to practice the things that he would lay out before us as the pathway to life and health and satisfaction. To have that hope of being able to reconcile and even to be able to forgive. have been listening a lot to uh, some uh, sermons, messages, and I, I bought his book, uh, Tim Keller's book on forgive and forgiveness. Wonderful book. Recommended highly. Recommending it because, in a sense, when you think of forgiveness, forgiveness, is, as Keller points out, as have others, forgiveness is often given before it is felt. It's one of the hardest things I think as Christians we are called to do. But it's right there in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Christ makes that possible because Christ made it possible for God to forgive us. So in light of having been forgiven our many trespasses, we have no right to be like the unrighteous servant in Matthew's parable, to hold a grudge against those who have committed a slight against us. It may be Grave or slight, but forgiveness is the commandment, and peace is the fruit of that obedience. So, awe is the key to knowing that hope and that confidence. And then, lastly, awe is the key to experiencing the help of God by living according to His Word, because that's how you're able to apply everything that He has said up until this point. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Because peace with God means that our sin-dead hearts have been brought back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an irony here in this last part of Isaiah, Isaiah 2, verse 5. Because the invitation that's being extended, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That, the people speaking here, are the nations that have been drawn to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And so here you have these pagan nations evangelizing the evangelists. Well, that's not surprising because Paul says a very similar thing in Romans eleven eleven, where he says if the Gentiles have been brought in to a relationship with God, their very purpose was to make Israel jealous. And so we are Gentiles. We weren't raised as Jews. We are those who are now commissioned to go out and say, come, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of his instruction. Let us walk in the truth of what God would want us to do. And the invitation to walk in the light of the Lord uh, points ahead to two passages from the New Testament, both from uh, the Apostle John. When John is speaking of Jesus in his gospel, he writes in verses uh, 4 and 5 of chapter 1, in him was life... And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then many years later, John, a now far older man, writes in his first letter, This is the message we have heard from him, meaning Jesus, and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to walk in the light of the Lord is simply to bring everything we think, everything we do, and everything we say under the authority of Jesus Christ and his instruction. It's to live under God's blessing by coming to Jesus, by taking his yoke upon us, learning from him who has described himself and has proven himself to be one who is gentle and humble in heart. And they're finding rest for our souls. Because if Advent does anything, if there's anything that we can draw from this, it's that it's, there's a rest to be found in making God the source of our awe and wonder. It means, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians ten four through 5, It means taking every thought captive through obedience to Christ, recognizing that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly things, they're not things of the world, but they are things of the Spirit. So Advent reminds us that it's important to take our thoughts captive by bringing them under the authority of Christ, accepting the Holy Spirit's invitation to refresh our faith, renew our hope, and revive our love for what God the Father did in sending God the Son. Advent is that God-given opportunity to renew that sense of awe and how it changes everything we say, think, and do. An invitation, once again, to look at Jesus, to make him, as he is, our source of awe, and to let him shape the direction of our life. An opportunity to renew our commitment to let him control our decisions, and the course that our life will take. Now, years ago, I, I read a story about a young boy lived in New York City uh, You know, back in the latter part of the 19th century, I think, when, back in the days when they had the gas street lamps and they had to have the lamplighters go around with the, and they used to light the lamps on the street. And the little boy was looking out his window on a foggy night just as the sun set. And he was watching with fascination as the lamplighter went down each, you know, the the street and began to light each lamp. And his mother, watching him, you know, asked him what was so fascinating that he held his attention. And he kind of just said over his shoulder, says, I'm watching a man cut holes in the darkness. That's what Advent is. It's a season when the Holy Spirit cuts holes in the darkness of our world and even of our hearts. To renew our sense of awe, our sense of wonder, and our sense of joy. And what God the Father did in sending God the Son to save us from our sins. That we might worship him and then tell others about him. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is always and forever the light of the world. We thank you that you have entrusted this light to us that by faith we may shine with that same light. And so we pray, Lord God, as you instruct us, as you teach us, we may shine with that light, shine with his light, that we may live by it, that we might make it our source of awe, so that in all things he would be glorified, and others, oh Lord God, would be drawn to worship him. This we ask and pray in Jesus' holy and strong name. Amen.